0: Welcome to Going Viral, a podcast all about the viruses that spread infectious disease. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian specializing in pandemics. And in this episode, I'll be examining the British government's response to COVID-19. With the UK having recorded more deaths than any other country in Europe, Anthony Costello, director of the Institute of Global Health at UCL, has described Britain's response as a disaster Others, however, question the efficacy of the social distancing measures and fear that shutting down the economy for months on end could result in far worse health repercussions.
1: By bringing forward the right measures at the right time, we minimize suffering and save life. And everything we do is based scrupulously on the best scientific advice.
0: Time and again, we've been told by Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock, they're merely following the science. We will be relying, as ever, on the science to inform us as we have from the beginning. But when scientific opinion is divided, whose scientific advice exactly are ministers following? And when special advisers such as Dominic Cummings are allowed to sit in on the scientific discussions, how can we be confident that such advice is free of political influence? To help us make sense of these issues and the government's decision-making running up to the lockdown on March the 23rd, My guests this week are Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, and Robert Dingwall, a medical sociologist at Nottingham Trent University, who sits on the New and Emerging Respiratory Virus Threats Advisory Group, or NERVTAG for short. NERVTAG is one of the key scientific committees advising the government. The other is SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. As a member of NERVTAG these past 18 months, Robert is in a unique position to shed light on its deliberations and respond to Costello and other critics.
2: Don't sweat the small stuff. You know, if I push my trolley too close to somebody in a supermarket queue, you can see people almost literally sweating with fear and ready to start a fight about it. That sort of thing is not helpful.
0: But let's start with Richard Horton. As editor of the Lancet Medical Journal, Horton's been one of the most vocal critics of the government's response, and has labelled the advice from Nervtech and Sage as the biggest scientific policy failure in a generation. You've been the editor for 30 years, which is extraordinary. Could you just explain the tradition of The Lancet and how you interpret that?
1: Okay, so The Lancet was founded in 1823 by a young surgeon called Thomas Wackley. And he founded it because when he went to study medicine in London, He was horrified by what he saw as the corruption of the medical establishment at the time. The famous surgeons and physicians of the time used to charge money for their students to come and attend lectures. And he felt that knowledge should be freely available or as freely available as possible. And it shouldn't be profited upon by the the great and the good of the time. What he did was he would put students into the lectures and they would take notes furiously and he would then publish the lectures uh, in the Lancet the following week. Well, of course, this enraged the medical establishment because he was single-handedly destroying their lucrative income. And that really established the two principles that the Lancet tries to adhere to today. The first one being to inform people about the latest news in medical science, but the second one is to try and reform the system of medicine as it's practiced. And that meant in 1823 that there was always a political dimension to Thomas Wackley's work. Indeed, he eventually became a member of Parliament for Finsbury and really took his work at the Lancet into domestic politics in Britain. And what we're trying to do is nothing different to that. We're trying to publish the very best medical science that we can find, but at the same time use that that as a platform for political advocacy. And so that's the tradition. And in a sense, that's what we're trying to live up to. Thomas Wackley's idea, we're trying to live up to that in the 21st century.
0: Let's talk about the word Lancet though, because I think that the actual word itself will tell a lot of people about, you know, your approach to these issues.
1: The word the Lancet does indeed reflect those twin goals because the Lancet can be an arched window, that lets in the light. Definitely, the Lancet saw itself as an instrument of enlightenment, publishing the very best medical knowledge. But secondly, the Lancet is also a surgical knife, which can be used to incise an abscess to let the pus drain out of the body. And, of course, the idea was that this was the abscess on the body politic of the medical establishment, and the Lancet would incise the medical establishment's abscess to allow the corrupt horrors of that establishment to drain away.
0: Okay, well, let's, let's come right up to the burning question. So you describe the UK response as the biggest science policy failure in a generation. So what is the boil that you're lancing in this crisis, Richard?
1: So we found ourselves at the end of January in an unusual situation. We published five research papers in the final week of January that set out the scale of what was taking place in China. And briefly, those papers described the new virus, its genetic composition, the fact that there was no treatment for that virus that there were a vast number of patients being admitted to intensive care units requiring ventilation, that the number of deaths were rising and rising rapidly, that there was a risk of a global pandemic, that there was definitely person-to-person transmission, that it was urgent testing capabilities for this virus were scaled up. It was also vital that personal protective equipment, which I will be Honest, I'd never heard of the phrase personal protective equipment mm. before, but in those papers, it was described as an absolutely essential tool for health workers to have access to. And those five papers collectively sent a signal that countries needed to get prepared. And then what we saw in the United Kingdom, but not only the United Kingdom, actually, in many other countries across Western Europe and across the United States, was studied inactivity. Nothing happened. And in fact, nothing happened for pretty much the whole of February. There was paralysis. Now, there are some perfectly interesting reasons why that took place. But nevertheless, the failure to understand what those five papers were describing means that there was a failure to grasp the severity of what was taking place in Wuhan. That's why there was a failure in science policy. Either nobody read those papers, which was an utter dereliction of duty by SAGE or any other science or medical advisor to government, or they did read them and they didn't believe them or they didn't take them seriously. It doesn't matter which way you cut it. It was a complete failure. Nobody can say we didn't know about this. What is unfolding in Britain today was perfectly predicted in the last week of January. The deaths that have taken place in Britain today, and across Europe, and across America, many of those deaths, many thousands of those deaths, were entirely preventable if somebody had paid attention to what was published at the end of January. That's why it's a failure. That's why I'm angry.
0: I wanted to zero in on where exactly you think this failure was. Did it lie with the politicians or the scientists? So, for instance, right from the beginning, from the first uh, press conferences that Boris Johnson was giving, we were told, quote, we're following the science. We will be led by the science. But we now know that there were different scientific opinions. The science was not settled. I mean, science is never settled. It's always evolving in a state of flux were the government following the science or were they abdicating responsibility for making a political decision by hiding behind the science
1: let's take the two parts the science and the politics first of all on the science we have a whole host of committees reporting spy b spy m nerve tag and sage and i completely uh, respect all of the individuals on those committees but something went wrong did those members of those committees not read these papers? And if they did read them, what did they think they were describing? Did they think this was just influenza and therefore it was something that they could write off and that it was mild? Because it was perfectly clear if you read the paper that described the genome, this was a new SARS-like virus, very closely related to SARS 2002-03. So the failure is utterly clear. Some people say, well, isn't this hindsight? And I would say, "No." if you read those papers, it's there in black and white. So I don't understand why any member of any of those committees advising government didn't get it. It Mm. was clear. And we were urging people to take that seriously. On the political side, it is completely unacceptable to simply say, well, we're essentially outsourcing our decision making to the science or the scientists. Now, I'm not expecting Matt Hancock to read five papers published in The Lancet in the last week of January, but I am expecting Matt Hancock to ask some of his colleagues, including his ministerial colleagues, what the hell is going on in China? So there was both a scientific failure and there was a catastrophic political failure.
0: We've seen the World Health Organization in previous pandemic outbreaks such as swine flu in 2009, been accused of pressing this pandemic panic button too early. And then the pandemic, as in 2009, didn't turn out to be as severe as predicted. And therefore, they were accused of crying wolf. You know, as someone who studied influenza, I remember very clearly at the beginning having this uneasy feeling. So for me, that started when I saw the extraordinary quarantine measures. And then overnight, the Chinese building this massive hospital. And I remember being asked to comment very on Channel 4 News, But I was cautious because I was aware I don't want to be the one saying this is the big one, right? What if it isn't the big one? I don't want to end up with egg on my face. Do you think that there was an element of that?
1: The reason why the Chinese government in Beijing lockdown Wuhan on January the 23rd was because they were scared stiff. They knew that it was another SARS-like episode. And they had been so humiliated back in 2002-03, they were never going to let that happen again. And especially with the virus that caused high mortality as as SARS did. Now, we could have seen that this was not influenza. Right. So for so the model, as I would say, all of your models were predicated on it, the next big one was going to be influenza. Fully understand that. No problem with that. But that, one of those papers at the end of January showed this was not influenza. You could also see that there were, of people being admitted to hospital, something like 30% of those admissions were ending up on intensive care, and half of the patients ending up on intensive care died. Don't tell me it takes you till March to suddenly change your mathematical model and realise that you've now got to double the number of patients being admitted to ITU. That information was available in January. I mean, this this is, this is why I, I, I do not understand and will not excuse those who didn't do anything for the month of February because all that information was there. So you're right, of course, one has to be Careful and responsible in the way one is discussing this and not to induce panic. But look at what the evidence was. This was not influenza, this was SARS Mark 2
2: Richard is a great succession of editors of The Lancet with a journal to promote.
1: This is
0: Robert Dingwall, medical sociologist and a member of NerveTag.
2: The first national risk register in around 2000 2001 had identified uh, an influenza pandemic as the most critical risk facing the country low probability but of very high impact uh, and you know it was sort of way out there in a in a different league to you know floods tornadoes hurricanes one off terrorist attacks and so on and the the pandemic influenza planning process was put into place to deal with that i was a member of a committee called crp which was set up to look at the ethical aspects. I was in a unique position, as it were, to see the whole government strategy for pandemic influenza. This is 2005, six, seven, okay. that the work was going on. So we have this process where a national, a national plan for pandemic influenza is created during the first decade of the 21st century, published in 2007, it's used as the basis for action in the 2009 swine flu outbreak. And the, the results of that are reviewed by Dame Deirdre Hine, who was the former Chief Medical Officer for Wales. into And that report was published in 2011. There's then the follow-up winter willow exercise, which I think is 2012, wasn't a, I wasn't a participant in that, but I did see the report and have a, a number of conversations with people who were involved in it.
0: What were the conclusions? What were the weak spots, gaps that were identified in Winter Willow in 2012?
2: Well, I think winter, what Winter Willow pointed to was perhaps a certain lack of flexibility in the planning the original plan had really been based on the assumption that any future influenza pandemic would look a bit like 1918, or if not exactly like 1918, a bit like 57 or 68. You know, it would be a high impact event. I don't think anybody quite believed that it would have the mortality associated with it that we saw in 1918. But it was certainly expected to be majorly disruptive. And of course, the the 2009 influenza, although it was a pandemic and appropriately labelled as such, didn't actually have that kind of impact. It wasn't a particularly serious infection. Although quite a lot of people got it and it did have an impact on mortality, it wasn't the kind of, didn't really match the template of the plan. And what Dave Deirdre's report recommended were ways really of ejecting a bit more flexibility, a bit more nuance a bit more gradation into the response. So it wasn't quite so all or nothing.
0: But Robert, specifically, that plan must have identified gaps in, for instance, ICU capacity, the need to stockpile PPE, and maybe antiviral drugs, prepare vaccines.
2: Well, not really, because the 2009 pandemic didn't challenge the system. It didn't stretch the system. I mean, it was accommodated without a whole lot of special measures. So it never really put pressure on the the national capacity to respond.
0: Okay, I'm a bit confused about that because I can point you to reports in 2008 from the president of the uh, Intensive Care Society talking about the, the lack of bed capacity, critical care bed capacity. And he was obviously privy to some of these exercises or planning assumptions. Uh, And he wrote wrote that we'd need five times as many beds, that you might have to triage, introduce a lottery
2: system. The intensivists were quite a problem in the planning because they were constantly making demands that were unrealistic and unethical. And we spent a lot of time on CRP discussing the intensivist documents. We had a very ill-tempered meeting with the intensivists where we were trying to explain to them why their principles for triage were wholly unacceptable. And, I mean, essentially they wanted the right to behave in a very... to command resources, to behave in an autocratic fashion and to be backed up by armed security guards on the door of intensive care units if the public didn't like it. Really? Yes. Wow.
0: But, But wait a second, was that because... They saw no political will to actually increase bed capacity.
2: Well, the case for increasing bed capacity was never made in terms that anybody else found acceptable. I mean, it wasn't a CRP, it wasn't a CRP issue. That you know, that wasn't treated as an ethics issue, and but as far as the the epidemiological and economic justification for that sort of, for the increase that they were talking about and they weren't just talking about a temporary increase they were talking about a permanent increase i mean it, it it looked very much like an attempt to use this process you know to grab extra resources for intensive care where nobody else could see a case for it
0: this is still before before the swine flu, but in that period yeah. where everyone's
2: focused on yeah. bird and flu, the swine flu doesn't the swine flu doesn't stretch intensive care capacity in the way that the that, that COVID-19 has done. So Dame Deirdre Hines' report doesn't really draw attention to those stress points because actually the process works quite well. Yeah. It's just that the that the full implementation of the 2000 plan is a bit over the top and disrupts other activities.
0: So after 2009, the plan was reviewed, published in 2011. This is the revised plan. Yes. And then it was reviewed again most recently in 2016. Yes. What can you tell us about what came out of that review? This was, I suppose, after the Cygnus exercise or around that time.
2: I can't tell you anything very specific about it. I mean, I've not seen any of the documents, I think that, this is rather reading between the lines, I think it was probably responsible for the formation of NerveTag, which was originally set up as a kind of horizon scanning committee. So I wasn't a founding member, but I, I've been a member for roughly 18 months. And at the, be- at the beginning, was basically receiving reports on emerging infections elsewhere. So it was looking at new strains of influenza, it was looking at MERS, It was looking for any evidence of the emergence of other coronaviruses.
0: So up until then, all the planning had been based on influenza or variations of influenza viruses. But now in 2016, really for the first time in this process that's begun um, at the beginning of the new millennium, you start to look at other potential pandemic risks. Yes, I mean... Coronaviruses...
2: Particularly the coronaviruses. I mean, twenty sixteen. You're you're sort of looking at the appearance. You know, the 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 emergence of MERS, for example. Yeah. There's quite a lot of concern about that because although it turns out that MERS is not particularly transmissible, it is quite lethal, and, th- and there was genuine concern that it might mutate into something that had easier human to human transmission, uh, yeah. and okay. that we should be on the alert for that. I mean, there were also other odd reports. Again, there's the sort of what we might term the SARS-1 situation, although that hadn't recurred. I mean, there was certainly an interest in reports of other coronaviruses, but it was very much sort of odd case studies, as I recall, that you know, it might have been that somebody was infected, but the documentation from Asia was you know rarely sufficient to establish that conclusively.
0: At what point... For you, did alarm bells start ringing about, you know, COVID and whether it was going to present really this major pandemic threat?
2: This is where I think Richard Horton's lashings of hindsight, you know, really kind of come in. I mean, at the beginning, NerveTag received reports from China very promptly. Initially, I think it's fair to say that the committee thought this looked very much like SARS revisited and that the Chinese had got a pretty good grip on it. They were doing all the sorts of things that you would expect to see being done in response to the first appearance of an unknown virus. So you had this quite hospital-centred response. You had all the hazmat suits, you know, the, all of the, the, that kind of lockdown. And I think the expectation was that, the, that this would be like SARS-1 Right. that it would not really break out very much in the way that SARS-1 didn't. You know, you have a few a few locations where SARS-1 is a serious problem. You know, Hong Kong, Toronto, to some extent Singapore. But I mean, it doesn't become a widespread infection. It was clear that the Chinese knew what they were doing and nobody saw any reason to question that.
0: The moment where I started to get a feeling that all oh, this could be worrying was when I saw them having to build overnight these hospital waiting rooms.
2: Well, we're talking, yeah, I mean, we're talking about sort of late February uh, as, as the knowledge of the virus increases, and it, particularly the great difference between SARS 1 and SARS 2. SARS 1 is not infectious until the symptoms appear, and SARS 2 is infectious at a pre symptomatic point, probably for about Two days,
0: Which we didn't really know in January, did we? Which we
2: certainly didn't know in January. In a sense, it, it took some time for the extent of community transmission to be understood and the extent to, to which it is, in general, a mild to moderate illness that doesn't require all of this aggressive hospitalisation. You know, the, At the beginning, the signal is these seriously ill people who are coming into an intensive care unit with an unknown condition. And it takes a bit of time, A, to work out what that is, to identify the virus. Um, And then it's only, if you like, when the kind of classic SARS-1 control measures don't work that you start to realise that actually there's a lot more of it out there than you realised. And it's being transmitted in different ways than you realised. But even then, it's sort of taking some time I mean, I mean NERVTAG is asked to produce a risk assessment on the day. So the initial risk assessment, looking at it and thinking the Chinese have got this, know what they're doing, it's under control. The risk to the UK population on that day is clearly low. As it becomes clear that the Chinese are struggling with the control, NERVTAG raises the risk assessment. And in fact, the, the risk assessment is then, re- is then raised again by chair, chair's action within two or three days.
0: OK, well, hang on. So this is a crucial period. So we're talking about, as, as I think it was from memory, I think February 21st, there was a debate about should we raise the risk level from moderate yeah. to, to severe?
2: I think it was raised to moderate. Uh, it was raised to moderate and then to high in fairly short order. That was the same weekend as we saw these
0: sudden eruption in Lombardy and towns in Lombardy being locked down, quarantined. Yeah. So, so take us through that. What was the debate that day? How many people were in favour
2: of keeping it moderate? I mean, the matter was debated, and there, I think there, it's fair to say that we took collective responsibility for a, 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 a consensus on that, that. Moderate was the right uh, was was the right level.
0: So could you just explain what was the reasoning for that then and what happened three days later?
2: Well, I think as you're pointing to the arrival of the, the virus in Europe, if I remember rightly, there had been the one-off case in Germany prior yeah. to that. Right. But again, I think the, that at that point, we were still working on the assumption that this was something that could wear the, the kind of classic public health containment or containment strategies would operate. Again, because the, if you like, the the pre-symptomatic transmission was not clearly understood.
0: So you met on Friday, February the 21st. And from my recollection, it was Saturday into Sunday morning that we suddenly got these reports that Lombardy had a lot of cases. And by Sunday evening, we're getting pictures of lockdown villages. I tweeted about it saying, this is it. We've got to take this seriously. What happens on the Monday once that data becomes clear to members of SAID. Well, I mean, there's,
2: there's an executive decision to, you know, to, you know, to, raise, to change the threat level in the light of the new information.
0: Just to be clear, because you mentioned earlier, the Lancet's line, Richard Horton's line, that all you guys needed to do was to have read all the articles they published in January, not even in February. And you had enough information evidence there to actually be acting more, you know, more aggressively and at a, treating the threat at a much higher level.
2: Well, I mean that's that's Orton's position. I mean those um, those are those articles were read, but I you know the you know the as as part of the um, part of the information that the um, the nerve tag had in front of it. But the the question to which the question to which nerve tag was asked to address itself was: What's the risk to the UK today? That was the
0: question. Yep.
2: Well, I mean, that's what the threat assessment is, the, the risk assessment is designed to do. At that point, whatever Richard Horton says, it was not clear that the, the virus represented a threat beyond, the, beyond China. Let me be clear, nobody underestimated the nature of the threat. It's an unknown virus. You know, we don't know what it does, but it seems to make people very sick. We saw the pictures of the people in the hazmat suits in, in Wuhan as well. There was no reason at that point to suppose that this was a global threat. Nobody was taking that position. People were serious. I mean, WHO was seriously concerned at that point. Uh, the international community was seriously concerned at that point. You know, the model that was being used was SARS-1 and the success of containing SARS-1 in a very limited number of geographical locations.
1: I can remember SARS in 2002, 2003. I can remember what we went through there, how China did lie to the world. We dodged a bullet then. We we did. You know, the, the virus died out by July of 2003, and we could claim it was all over, but, by God, we were lucky.
2: Governments are making the same calculations as the insurance industry does, which is to to recognise that there are some events which will be very rare, but will be quite catastrophic if they ever happen. I mean, like, you know, the the sort of movie scenarios about asteroids hitting the Earth, you know, which may be a sort of once in 10 million years event. And how much are you justified in in trying to sort of scan for it in any given year? And and the the same is broadly true of pandemics. I mean, that you know, they don't follow any particular pattern but clearly they come around something like every 20 to 50 years you know when that, when they happen they're you know they're a major nuisance but how much is it appropriate to spend out of you know in any one year you know, to deal with that and i think i think the uk government had felt a little bit burned by the the criticism of the tamiflu stockpile for example all this money had been put in but then the stockpile had relatively little use. Sorry, so, just to be, just to remind listeners,
0: um, so you're talking about in the run up to the 2009 swine flu.
2: Well, and, and oh, in a, yeah. uh, you know, the the government assembled a substantial stockpile of the you know, the, the only medication which had any degree of effectiveness uh, against influenza, uh, and was was then sort of roundly criticised, not least by Richard Horton and some of his associates, for for having done so. You know the, the belief that you know somehow they've been conned by the drug companies, uh, by Roche in particular.
0: But but I mean your point being essentially that it did cost a lot of money. That was an investment in pandemic planning.
2: It was a big investment in pandemic planning, and it was roundly criticised by a lot of people.
0: And the consequence of that was that there that increased the reluctance to just throw money at this issue again.
2: Yeah, I mean it was. A certain sensitivity, especially in a time of austerity, how much are we going to divert into this? What is the correct size of the stockpile? I mean, as I understand it, the national stockpile on PPE, for example, was only ever intended as a buffer until a flow of, uh, an international flow of supplies could, you know, could arrive in the country. So, you know, that's an NHS decision. It's not a scientific advisor decision.
1: Why were we not using our international networks of scientists? The, the one thing that is amazing about the science community is that it is truly a transnational epistemic community. Mm-hmm. It is a community that extends across nations and across borders. We can tap into that network. We should have tapped into that network. And I think, I mean, these are speculations, so forgive me. But I think what we did was, first of all, There was a certain amount of groupthink, that everybody was coming at this through the lens of influenza. They weren't thinking in the SARS way. This is why China responded so differently, number one. And number two, there was the degree of arrogance that we thought, you know, Britain does have absolutely some of the best scientists in the world. We do. But, you know, I think we may have thought we only need to consult ourselves. Why didn't we go out and draw on that international network that we have and talk to the Chen Wangs, who's president of the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, or the George Gao's, who's head of the China CDC? Why weren't they asking them? And I think there was something about this splendid isolation of our scientific community in the UK, that we've got all the information we need, we're smart, we can work this out ourselves. And maybe on the political side, that's the science side, maybe on the political side, we thought we could go it alone. We could do it on our own. Maybe there was the shadow of Brexit hanging over this. And I I have to declare my interest here, because I was furious about Brexit. I think it's an act of violent self-harm against the countries. But I do wonder, whether that separation meant that politicians thought we don't want to be seen to be drawing on the European Union experience. We don't want to be seen to be dependent upon the EU scientific advice. Otherwise, that's going to look as if we're somehow going back into Europe and that's the last thing we want to send as a political signal. The only way you can can solve the challenge of a pandemic is through intense cooperation. And what we did not do was intensely cooperate with our partners around the world who had this first-hand experience. We we separated ourselves in so many ways, and that was a fundamental mistake.
2: What I would say, what I have been saying, is that I think the, the government got off to a slow start. Seamless was never properly followed up because of the distraction of Brexit and the, the direction of civil service resources towards that. And I mean, I was constantly being told in other contexts after 2016, you know, DHSC doesn't have the capacity to do this. It doesn't have the capacity to do that because we're all working on Brexit. we have got that distraction in the, in the process. You get to January, you've got an inexperienced team of ministers who've just come into office. They're in a standoff with the media. They've got a civil service that's not geared up to manage the pandemic. And they never get on the front foot in terms of selling the plan to the people mm. and of, 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 of getting an atmosphere of confidence that we know what we're doing. And then the you know, the whole thing gets taken over by the Downing Street press conferences, the celebrity journalists rather than the science and medical journalists, You know these people who don't really understand the, the thinking, mm. but who kind of latch on to very simplistic issues and use them to beat the government with because... They think that's what the job of a celebrity political journalist is about. So you're saying, contrary to the media
0: narrative, you're saying that we actually did have a plan, quite a well-considered plan, a plan that, unlike those of other European nations, had weighed the cost of suppressing the virus as against the impacts on the economy but that because of Brexit, because of all those distractions, there was never a time where people got on the front foot to explain the plan in a way that may have carried wider public support. Is that right? Is that your position? Yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So tell me,
2: Robert, what was the plan and how do you think it could have gone? basically the problem is that the only way out of the the, the situation with it with this new virus is the achievement of level of population immunity
0: this famous herd immunity non-strategy in inverted growth. <laughs>
2: well yeah but i mean governments have a choice about how they get there and hopefully the strategy that those those choices can be managed eventually with with vaccination as the key to population immunity rather than infection. The pandemic plan was a a robust place to start from. It would obviously have needed fine-tuning in the light of the different characteristics of this virus from the influenza viruses that it was designed to deal with. But in some respects, for example, like school closures, you know the case against school closure was much stronger with the coronavirus because children are not don't seem to be a major vector of transmission in the way that they are with influenza. So that although you know the, the knock-on social and economic impact of school closures was 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 very well understood, the you know the popular pressure to close schools proved proved, proved, proved irresistible. Although it's even less appropriate with this virus than it would have been with influenza. That issue of whether to close schools or not goes back and forth with influenza.
0: But there seems a little logic when we know that children are not major spreaders of the disease and very few of them end up in hospital.
2: Yes, yeah. So was there other aspects of the plan besides the school closures, though, that you thought we could have got on the front foot with? Quite a lot of the social distancing you know, had very little evidence base. And again, it's sort of, you know, the messaging went over the top. So...
0: That weekend when Lombardy became, you know, a big story, the following week, I was invited on to the Jeremy Vine show. And I have to say that I was very much then of the mind we need to socially distance now. Okay, that was my position. And I was quite shocked because um I was I, I was in the studio and also Hugh Pym, the BBC correspondent, was there. And by this point, a lot of the premiership clubs I think were already suspending training. I mean, the the manager of Arsenal fell ill. That was the first, you know, Michael Arteta. And very quickly after that, the, the clubs independently decided they weren't going to run premiership. But Hugh Pym said to me, well, I've just come from the Department of Health. And they say, there's no risk of you catching coronavirus in a crowded stadium. And I was, I can remember, I was flabbergasted. I said, but in Italy, they're telling people to be two metres apart. Have you ever been through a turnstile? Have you sat next to someone shouting and swearing in your ear at a football match? So I wondered, did you, Pim, just make that up? Or is that the sort of advice that was coming out of your deliberation?
2: I think early on, I mean, one was looking at something that was much closer to the Swedish strategy. I mean, I was saying earlier that, look, you know, governments only have a choice about how they get to population unity. And you can either have, if you like, a managed slow burn, which is roughly what the Swedes have been trying to achieve and which was really, I think, what we'd envisaged at the beginning. Mm. Or you can have this acute lockdown, mm. which, is, which I describe as a boom and bust. <laughs> you kind of lock everything down. You stop, the, you stop the infection in its tracks for a period. As soon as you release the lockdown, the infection starts up again which yeah. is what seems to be happening in Asia. And I think we can only get a verdict on the, on the relative merits of those strategies sometime next year when we look at you know, what's the mortality over yeah. the medium term yeah. rather than day-to-day or week-to-week.
1: Vaccinology was born in the UK. We have an honourable tradition of vaccine science. And vaccine science is based entirely upon the concept of herd immunity. If you don't build up immunity in a population, um, and we saw this, of course, with the whole MMR measles story, if, if if your herd immunity drops below a certain level, there's a risk to the population that you will get community transmission of the virus and then a very severe impact. And I think we... Because we've grown up in this, in it being at the forefront of vaccine science, I think this dominant idea of herd immunity shapes our scientific thinking. And so, with any threat like a, a virus such as this, immediately what we're thinking of is herd immunity. How do we get the population to be immune? So, the reason why we were talking about herd immunity all the way through February was, I'm sure, because of our justifiably strong reputation for vaccine science, but that was allowed to colour the way we thought about this particular virus, that we didn't think about it in terms of a traditional public health approach about testing and isolating and contact tracing and so on. So I think there are definitely some historical currents that, in a sense, shapes the framing that we had for what this was, Understandable, but regrettable and not an excuse.
0: One way of looking at this crisis is it's not actually a crisis caused by a pandemic, in this case, a pandemic of coronavirus. It's a pandemic crisis caused by the systemic and decades-long underfunding of health systems. And that is a political decision. And that political buck must stop somewhere. Right now, people are asking, why are we all under lockdown? There's been a lot of pushback from that, particularly from the right. I'm thinking of commentators like Peter Hitchens, but even people like Simon Jenkins, who are saying, well, you know, people die every year from influenza. What's different? So they just don't get it. They don't get the coronavirus is different. But where that's coming from is the sense that why are we being asked to restrict our social liberties? So my answer to that would be, you're right to be angry. You should be angry with the government for not funding the health system so it can cope.
1: Yes, there are definitely political responsibilities. You know, if you look at the numbers of intensive care unit beds in the UK per unit of population, we had one of the lowest rates compared with many other countries. And when we say, as I've heard the Secretary of State say, the NHS coped with this. We succeeded. The NHS worked. I say, no, it didn't. We cleared out 33,000 beds from the NHS in order to make way for patients to be admitted with COVID-19. We cancelled numerous elective procedures. The NHS didn't cope. The NHS basically stopped doing what it normally does and went into pause so it could deal with the wave of COVID-19. And now we're talking about it getting started again. But the NHS only survived because it stopped doing what it was supposed to do. We did not have the surge capacity. So there's an issue of the chronic underfunding of the NHS. But as we know from the modelling that was done, we did not plan for that surge capacity. We didn't plan for it. So that is the kind of political failure that we've, we should be asking government to account for. Since SARS, we should have been understanding that we needed to plan for another SARS-like event. And we didn't do that.
0: So Richard, I want to move on now to another aspect of this, because another thing you've been doing or using the, the, the lance of the columns of the lancing is to really draw attention to what's going on inside our ICUs, inside our critical care facilities. And I know that you, uh, early on, um, when you, you realised how serious this was and your concerns were growing about the lack of preparation, you invited doctors, nurses to tweet you, to email you, telling what they were facing. And I I find this some of the most powerful and moving, I really call it journalism that the Lancet's been doing, actually, because I was struck by um, one of the uh, articles, I think it was a comment piece you wrote in April, where you quoted a doctor who had written to you describing what was going on as a national scandal. Paint a picture of what is going on inside our ICUs. Because of course, we should remind people that most national hospital trusts Prohibit doctors from speaking to the media without permission.
1: Yeah, well, that's right. That was the reason why I did it. So I used Twitter as a way to say, please direct message me your experiences on the front lines of care, and I will transmit them anonymously so that we can get this information out. And I mean, it was just the most horrific story that we saw through the month of February and March we were sending health workers into a zone of extreme danger uh, without proper protection they didn't have full body gowns they didn't have eye protection their skin was exposed the way one person described it, we we were sending lambs to the slaughter. People were frightened when they raised concerns. The managers within hospitals were dismissing those concerns. They were threatening staff with disciplinary action. When staff wanted were concerned about being unwell and they wanted testing, they were denied tests. I don't actually like war metaphors, but it sounded like a battlefield. With staff on the one side... Completely unprotected from this, from from being infected, and a management that was utterly indifferent to their concerns. And I was getting these messages every single day. I mean, if I look back at my notes around March the 18th, a whole series of messages no PPE, no testing, IT woefully bad. NHS needs staff testing to keep the front lines going. No PPE, only got hand sanitizer, only tissue paper, nothing else, and even that's running low. No staff testing, not enough support for junior staff, shorter staff, great stress, clinical community worried but quiet. NHS staff need protection and we're not getting it. NHS trust policy is not to adopt Public Health England advice about isolation. You're expected to attend work even if you're unwell. Desperately short of PPE, going to B&Q to buy eye protection, no PPE. The the situation is horrendous for everyone. I could go on and I've got pages and pages of this stuff because nobody was listening to them. They had no outlet. None of their representatives in medicine were saying these things. I mean, we literally abandoned the health workforce in Britain in this high-risk danger zone.
0: I think here, perhaps, the war metaphor is appropriate, Richard, because this, this is all reminiscent of the famous shells crisis in World War One, where we, we send our soldiers to the front line with defective shells. You know, it's the same thing. We're sending health workers to the front line of this most awful outbreak with defective equipment, or well, no equipment.
1: No equipment. No equipment at all. And nobody was speaking up for them. Abdul Chowdhury, who died at Homerton Hospital, he put out this call for PPE and his son is now bravely and courageously trying to hold the government to account for the fact that they didn't pay attention to what his father was calling for. I mean, it's tragic to hear that it takes the son of a doctor who died to be asking these questions of the Secretary of State. Why aren't our senior medical leaders doing this? Mm. They're silent, utterly silent.
0: I don't think our listeners will realise this, but, you know, your concern for NHS workers, for doctors and nurses, isn't just uh, a concern that comes from your political reading of this crisis. You, you also have personal skin in this game, don't you? Are you happy to tell us about your own health struggles and what that has told you about the sort of institution we have
1: yeah, I mean, I, I trained as a medical student in the National Health Service and worked in the NHS for several years, but I haven't been working in the NHS for 25 years. And then about 18 months ago, I was diagnosed with a melanoma and I initially had surgery, but it came back. Back with a vengeance, and I had stage three melanoma, which was quite advanced. I had a massive operation about a year ago for that, and was in hospital for a week and was was pretty unwell. Let's say that was a big experience because in the middle of the night, when you're alone and you're frightened and you don't think you're going to live and you're in pain and something goes wrong, there was a nurse that was always there. There was somebody who was there by your side every second, every hour every day whether it was to hold your hand or just to do whatever it was the nhs is the most beautiful thing the country has ever created and the people who work in the nhs are the most dedicated citizens that uh, i've personally known what they do is mostly invisible is mostly unseen And yet they are the absolute, not just the backbone of the NHS, they are also the moral backbone of our country. And I found my experience with them and continue to find my experience with them because I continue on treatment um, to be nothing less than inspirational. So... I feel that what we're trying to do at The Lancet and what I've been trying to do partly is also defend them because they need spokespeople. And uh, if we can do anything to speak for them, then I'm happy.
0: We owe them a duty of care. The same care they give us, we need to respond and take care of them.
1: Absolutely. There's nothing we've created in society that's based on compassion and love and care like the NHS. These are the values that make our society worth defending.
0: So Robert, tell us, what do you think our way out of this
2: is? Well, I think the government has got itself into a very difficult situation here. It's rather disappointing that they're not taking the opportunity to get on the front foot for this phase by engaging with much more of a public dialogue. With setting out possibilities, ideas, asking for public suggestions. I mean, it's not a partisan point, but I mean, I think Nicola Sturgeon's been trying to do some of this in Scotland. Rather than saying, well, we're going to cook up another plan among, among a bunch of elite actors in Whitehall, and we'll come out at a press conference one day and we'll announce it. And I think that's really important because of the, the growing evidence of a level of, of anxiety, of even fear in the population. Now, it's kind of problematic, but you can see these sort of hints of, well, even if the lockdowns relax, maybe we, a lot of people won't go along with it because they're still too too anxious or too frightened. You know, people won't go back to work. They won't go shopping. They won't send their kids to school. That kind of disengagement is, I think, very, very, very problematic. I mean, the modelers just say, well, you know, keep up the social distancing, without ever being specific about what that means. Do you
0: think that there's there's been too much focus on the models and, and, and they're, they've they been driving this
2: far too much? Well, the models are very smart people. But I mean, what we're into is about round five of the conflict that's been going on since the foot and mouth outbreak of 2001, between the models and the epidemiologists, with the social scientists sitting on the sidelines and saying, look, you know, neither of you guys really understand what it's like on the ground. And that is the problem with the modelling. I mean, there are you know, the models, they're very smart mathematicians, but the whole elaborate structure rests on very crude assumptions and very partial data. And what I've been arguing for is a more nuanced approach, which is simply saying, look, the route out is partly about public engagement. It's partly about understanding the things that are not making much contribution to interrupting transmission. And school closures are the best example of that. And there's the things which are which are just sort of pointless which are you know, like the two metre rule.
0: I think you're on record as saying the one metre rule has some basis. It, it, it does, yes.
2: There is, good, there is good evidence for in, that indoors one metre is pretty crucial. Sustained for 15 minutes. You're know, fleeting, fleeting contacts and are, are not the way in which this virus gets transmitted. Can we also talk about elderly people? So I, yeah. I
0: have an 88-year-old mum who has been on lockdown... Since Lombardy, because <laughs> that's yeah. where I impose restrictions. She's getting very frustrated,
2: and rightly so. And you're bullying her into knocking her down. What you know? Where where does her autonomy come in? Where where does her right to make a decision about? Okay, I might not have an awful lot of my life left, but this is not a very nice way of living it. And uh, you know, I would choose to take those risks. And I think we have to respect that. I shall be 70 in August, and I'm damned if I'm going to, be, to start self-isolating just because it's my birthday. And certainly I think the the way out of this is to focus much more on the ends than on the specific means. You know, it is to trust people. It is to say to communities, work some of these things out within a framework that we can help you with. Don't sweat the small stuff. But, you know, if I push my trolley too close to somebody in a supermarket queue, and you can, you can see people almost literally sweating with fear and ready to start a fight about it. That sort of thing is not helpful. So, Richard, what should we be
0: doing that we haven't been doing until now? First
1: now. of all, we need to use the month of May to ramp up our testing capacity, recruit 18,000 contact tracers so that when we've got R0 low, hopefully around 05 We can start to gently lift the lockdown. Then we go in and do the contact tracing. So we drive down R0 even more. We extinguish community transmission. That's the first step. Step two, after that, you gradually, incrementally expand economic activity. We're going to need to keep some things in place, like physical distancing, possibly face masks. And things aren't going to go back to normal for many, many months because of the risk of a second wave. We do need to build up this surge capacity in the NHS. We can't have this situation where we chuck out 33,000 beds just in case there is another wave coming. So the NHS has somehow got to cope with that 33,000 business as usual, and in addition, plan in case there is a second wave. And that's going to require a considerable expansion of the health service. We're going to have to invest heavily in the NHS. But what we're also going to have to do is very rapidly integrate social care with health care. We can't continue to have a parallel system. The two need to be fully integrated operationally and in terms of their budgets. Otherwise we really are creating a discriminatory system where the old are regarded as second class citizens and we're happy for virtually a genocide to take place of the elderly because we've totally forgotten about them. So those are, those are some of the immediate, the immediate things we need to do and then I would also run alongside that A very quick public inquiry that begins to try and understand the the reasons why the system of science advice and political decision making also failed.
0: So, who's right? Are we risking a genocide of the elderly, as Horton puts it? Or do we need to take a more balanced and nuanced assessment of the risks and learn, as Dingwall puts it, not to sweat the small stuff? And when the government says it's following the science, Does the public have a right to know whether it's being exposed to the full range of scientific opinions and what those opinions are? No sooner had we recorded this podcast than these questions broke out into the open. Decrying the secrecy surrounding the membership of SAGE, Sir David King, who served as Chief Scientific Advisor under previous Labour governments, convened his own panel of scientific experts and began broadcasting their deliberations live on YouTube. Meanwhile, Sir Jeremy Farrar, the director of the Wellcome Trust, mounted a vigorous defense of SAGE on BBC Radio 4's Today program. As one of the few advisers on SAGE to volunteer his membership, Sir Jeremy said he was in favor of greater transparency. He added that he'd never witnessed any attempt to influence the scientific advice and thought it was helpful for Cummings and other political advisers to sit in on SAGE meetings. Thank you for listening to Going Viral, The COVID Files. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our series. We'd also like to hear your views, and we'd love for you to rate us too. Follow us on Twitter at Viral underscore pod, or on Instagram at Going underscore the Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. This has been The COVID Files.